Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced and edited by The Milk Mob and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hey, Karen, how's it going? That's great. How are you? Good, good. Hey, so we're going to talk about some interesting things today. Um, I'm going to start off by talking about um, autism spectrum disorder and breastfeeding. Um, This was an article that was published in the Journal of Neurosciences in Rural Practice, um, coming from a group of researchers in uh, the departments of psychiatry and pediatrics at um, at a postgraduate medical education research center in Puducherry, India. And uh, it's entitled, The Role of Exclusive Breastfeeding in Conferring Protection in Children at Risk for Autism Spectrum Disorder, results from a sibling case control study. So the background, the background to the study um, is the concept of that brain-gut microbiome access and uh, infant feeding. So they were really interested to, to understanding that the gut microbiome plays such an important role in brain development. Um, they understand that infant feeding also plays an important role in this as well. So they're interested to see if there's an association with infant feeding and autism spectrum disorder. So um, First, they point out about how important breastfeeding is and about how it's really the trifecta for um, the brain-gut microbiome. So first, we know that breastfeeding is associated with a healthy, micro- healthier microbiome, right? So we have more bifido, bacteria, and less E. coli. And then in addition, breast milk has all these anti-inflammatory factors that are important for immune maturation and brain, and brain development. So things like some of the factors that they point out are IgA, transforming growth factor beta, interleukin-10, erythropoietin, and lactoferrin. And then they talk about the unique nutritional properties in breast milk that are ideal for brain growth and maturity, um, such as essential fatty acids and antioxidants like carotenoids. And for those of you who have been listening to our podcasts on the Milk Mob YouTube channel, um, from February, we talked all about carotenoids and their anti oxidant effects, Um, and then of course growth factors. Um, So there have already been some studies showing that children with autism spectrum disorder are suboptimally breastfed, meaning, you know, according to the World Health Organization standards of optimal, we're talking about not being exclusively breastfed for the first six months. Um, And then there are other studies that have found a difference in gut microflora in children with autism spectrum disorder with more clostridium. So what they decided to do was to take children who are on the spectrum and compare them to a sibling as a control. And um, so they had 30 children with autism spectrum disorder who were seen at a child guidance clinic in India between 2015 and 2016. And all the children were between the ages of two and six, and they all met the criteria for autism spectrum disorder. They all, one of the criteria to be included is that they all had to have one sibling who was typical 
um, and who is not over age six, because when the kid's older, it's hard to remember like how much they were breastfed and things like that. And they decided that this was a good model because by choosing siblings, they could eliminate all the other confounders, such as socioeconomic status and diet and maternal education and other cultural factors. So they interviewed the mothers, um, asking various questions about exclusivity of breastfeeding, when solids were introduced, age of weaning, and then they also asked about breastfeeding difficulties um, since early weaning can be due to difficulty feeding and difficulty feeding might have to do with autism autism as well, right? Hmm. So um, most of the children, the interesting thing about this is that most of the children with autism spectrum disorder were first born, which I think is true um, epidemiologically, I assume. Um, and so what they found essentially is that about 77% of the siblings who were typically developing who didn't have autism spectrum disorder, they were exclusively breastfed. But only 43% of the children with autism spectrum disorder were, were exclusively breastfed. So until six months. So in other words, you know, a significant number of these children, more they were more likely if they had autism to not be exclusively breastfed to six months as compared to those who were typical. And huh. there was no association between the severity of autism and the lack of exclusive breastfeeding or early introduction to solid. So it wasn't like it was a dose-response relationship there um, so that the children who you know, were barely breastfed, had the worst autism than those who had some breastfeeding than those who had, you know, the most breastfeeding. So, so that always, you know, you always wonder if there's no dose response, if, you know, how true this really is. Yeah. And I also wonder, like, if you were to look at, you know, if they had done a case control where they looked at a whole bunch of other siblings where the, um, younger sibling was the one with autism, like if there was a greater number in that group, or if it was two typical kids, if they'd find a, a big difference in the numbers that were, um, had a longer duration of breastfeeding in the first sibling. Because my gut is that moms frequently wean earlier with their first child if they want to breastfeed, but it's not going well, then with their second child, it goes better. And their third child, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, all the time, all the time. I, that, that was one of my biggest criticisms was that I think the firstborn children tend to be nursed the shortest. And I don't know if there's actually, if anyone has actually documented that, but it, it's just a no brainer. I mean, I just, yeah, I we just see it all the time all in the our time. practice. Yeah. yeah. All the time. Because Either that or the first one didn't go that well. And then they don't breastfeed any of the other ones. That's the other, there's the other thing too. story that you see. Right. Sometimes. Right. But the other thing is that we know from research that mothers always make more milk the next time. And so, or not always, but I mean, they're, they, it's have more the, common, yeah. they have the potential to, unless something goes wrong. And so, um, so if they have more milk the next time, they're not going to be weaning early, at least due to milk supply concerns. Um, so, and then they didn't really talk a lot about um, the relationship between problems and autism spectrum disorder. So, it seems like there's some evidence for this, but um, I don't. I don't know. I. 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 I we're certainly not ready to say that. Oh, you should best. More studies are needed, as usual. As usual, but certainly we're not ready to say that you know breastfeeding is going to prevent autism spectrum disorder. But it is important to optimize the gut microbiome, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, Fascinating. Yeah. 
it's interesting to follow up on more studies on that. The other, the next study I just want to mention is about um, proteomics analysis of human breast milk to assess breast cancer risk. So proteomics analysis is basically looking at proteins of human breast milk. Um, so this was published by um, a number of authors who were from New York, um, Roshanik Aslaba, um, Divaka Chanavirapa, and others. And um, this was uh, published in November of 2017 in a journal that's called Electrophoresis um, Journal. Um, it's www.electrophoresis-journal.com. So you can probably see it if you go there. So as many of us know, you and me and everyone listening, we know that breast cancer is super common. Breast cancer is the second leading cause of cancer among American women after lung cancer. But the problem with breast cancer diagnosis is that um, it's hard to detect in young women. We don't really screen young women because we don't have a way to. And mammograms are not a good way of screening young women because the tissue is pretty dense um, and dense tissue is normal for a woman of childbearing years. And so that's why... You know, if a woman at 39 goes to have her mammogram, she'll get kicked out of the breast, the breast screening center if she's asymptomatic and doesn't have high risk because they're going to say, we can't see anything. There's no reason to have this done. Um, but um, even though we know that women's lifetime risk of breast cancer is lower with each full-term pregnancy, so the more pregnancies a woman has, the lower her risk of breast cancer, there's this transient increased risk of developing breast cancer during pregnancy. And then, and that's actually, that actually lasts for five years after giving birth. So there's a pregnant, so pregnancy associated breast cancer is not only during pregnancy, but it lasts for five years after the pregnancy is over. And then the problem is that for every pregnancy, the risk for pregnancy associated breast cancer increases because she's getting older and age is associated with breast cancer risk. Mm. So the problem is that we just don't have a way to identify breast cancer among young women. And, um, you know, you and I, many of us who are listening have met women who've been diagnosed with breast cancer during pregnancy or during mm -hmm. lactation or even before they ever become pregnant. So the authors um, state that um, that there have been many studies that have been looking for biomarkers that would be helpful to identify women at risk. So biomarkers are like other th like markers that we can find through blood testing or other sorts of testing. Um, and there have been studies looking at biomarkers through blood, nipple aspirate fluid, tears, urine, saliva, and breast milk. In fact, I used to do pap smears of like paps of breast discharge from women, like if women coming in, they have like a yellowish sticky discharge or something. I would just do a pap. Yeah. Um, but um, now our lab doesn't do it anymore. <laughs> what sort of collection tool did you use for this? So what we would do is we would take a glass slide and we would um, like, um, I would manually express some of the goo from her breast and then I would wipe the slide <sighs> over. That sounds the... better. I was imagining the little pipe cleaner thing. oh god no 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 that's for the intracervical you know sample no no no, no you I, just... I, know. I was like what are you doing no when we used to do paps with slides i don't even know if anyone does paps with slides anymore i don't um you know when i'm doing um you know just regular cervical paps um mm -hmm. but no then we take the slide and wipe it over her nipple and get a smear of the gooey stuff you know and then and then and then fix it with the fixative like the, the hairspray thing. spray yeah yeah, yeah. 
but then uh, but we don't but our lab uh, our pathologists don't do that anymore because they say it's just not predictive it's just not helpful to look at that when you have you know if you're looking for breast cancer when someone has a um, a spontaneous nipple discharge um, so um, so uh, these authors um, hypothesize that breast milk might be the best body fluid to look for a biomarker for early detection of breast cancer because breast milk has lots of stuff in it. It has proteins, so maybe protein expression differs in a breast that has breast cancer versus non-breast cancer. Um, there are, there's a difference in immune, you know, you can find immune cells, various types of immune cells like macrophages and eosinophils and white cells, etc. Maybe that could be a biomarker. And then there's also the good old exfoliated epithelial cells, just like the leaves of a tree that fall, fell on the ground. If you want to see if a tree has a, has disease, you could just maybe pick up the leaves on the on the ground and, and study those. Um, so it'd be the same sort of thing, you know, in breast milk. Um, and the other thing about breast milk, it's, it's really easy to collect breast milk. It doesn't have to be invasive. Um, and it's available right during that, uh, that time of vulnerability of that pregnancy-associated uh, breast cancer. So like you could even express some colostrum, you know, during pregnancy and, and be able to look at this. Um, so and th this was really just more of a pilot study and it was more like uh, looking at various variables, I guess I should say, that may play a role in the best time to collect this milk um, and other factors that may play a role in looking for, the, for these biomarkers. So in this study, they only had 10 samples. And so they looked at two women who had breast cancer during lactation and they um, they compared the milk from one breast with the cancer with the other breast and then the other sample the other women they compared across women so they took women with breast cancer and collected milk from both breasts and compared that milk to women who didn't have any breast cancer and they collected milk from both breasts from those women. And they just looked at all the different, like they basically looked at proteins that are excreted from the breast milk and they looked to see if there was more of certain proteins or less of certain proteins. And they compared the protein, the presence of different proteins um, in terms of other studies where these proteins have been found to be higher or lower with other types of cancers. So it's really super involved and very detailed, and I don't, I can't go into detail with all these things because there was no, there were really no conclusions, but to, but except to say that it does appear that the researchers are probably on the right track, and that they found a lot of confounding factors that needed to be worked through to continue this sort of research. So, for example, they thought that. Um, if the milk is collected after the breast biopsy, like if someone's already diagnosed and they're healing from the biopsy, that's probably not a good time to collect the milk because they may have more protein dysregulation. Um, oh, so and, they need to collect it before they do the biopsy. Yeah, or maybe way down the line, maybe, you know, maybe wait three or six months or something. Um, except that at that point, the woman's probably being treated. So, yeah, so it's, it's going to be harder to figure out. Um, I mean, it's like doing your blood culture before you start your antibiotics. Oh, I right, mean, exactly, right. like... Okay, it's, at some point this becomes predictive, then that might become a standard of care. We're going to do yeah, this get collection your milk first before, right? Exactly, right. And then, um, and then not, and so in this, in the among the samples where they collected the milk from one side and the other in the women who had breast cancer, they realized we probably shouldn't do that because it dilutes any kind of change that may occur from the breast that had the cancer. So just take the milk from the breast that has the cancer and don't mix it with the milk from the other breast. 
Um, oh, they mix the samples together. Yeah, for some of them. Oh, I, of that's them. so fascinating because I assumed that they were comparing the two when you only only for the two only for two women. So for uh-huh. the two women, where it was within the same woman comparison, one breast with cancer, one without. Um, yeah. Then they did find differences in proteins, um, but then one woman was biopsied before, and one was. Uh, by one was biopsied before the milk collection, and one had milk collection before the biopsy. So then, wow. you know, it's apples so and oranges. So there really are really small numbers. Yeah. yeah, these are real small numbers. But it was just kind of interesting. Um, it, if any, you know, if people understand about protein research um, and using mass spectroscopy, um, I think that it, you know, this would be interesting for anyone who, who you know, basically understands this stuff. Um, I mean, it's super fascinating. Were you in? The ABM conference, I think it was one in D.C. where they presented on collecting breast milk on those, um, you know, the the paper they use for the metabolic screen, the, the yeah. heel sticks they do on babies. Yeah, yeah. And starting to create, like you know, database. really large, yeah, like be, being able to do analytics on these proteins to right. look for things that put people at higher risk. Yeah, I think this is very quickly emerging so it'll be fascinating to have some other way of of you know look looking at prediction and um you know i was also reading about um do you know about 23 and me uh-huh have you uh, that's that um company. a bunch of my partners did it because there was a group on over christmas oh really uh-huh. <laughs> interesting well they just got fda approval to be able to to actually give their results to to people to actually give predictive results uh-huh. um i just read that in the washington post and so I wonder if this is going to be the same sort of thing where women can actually submit their own samples and actually be able to be, you know, be told that they have certain, you know, that they, they get risks stratified, you know. Wow. I don't know. It sounds like there would be a lot of liability in that, particularly in this area. But but 23andMe, I think, looks at BRCA, the BRCA gene. So it's, wow. yeah. But, you know, BRCA, I think it's a... It's really like a very, um, it's the penetrance is enough and that it's, you know, it's a dominant gene. It's more, it's easier to interpret than sort of like this, like gestalt of proteins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But maybe in 10 years, maybe we'll someday have... <laughs> we'll have better understanding. But right now I think that they're sort of in the, you know, like when you talk about diabetes, there's bunch of genetic factors there's a bunch of environmental factors we don't really quite understand what's going to play in to cause one person to get the diagnosis as opposed to another right epigenetics yeah epigenetics yes um yeah um so so that's interesting we'll see what happens with that it would be nice to have someone um, come and talk at the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine in the next year or two, just where we're at with that and hearing about that every one or two years would be fantastic to kind of keep yeah, up absolutely. with that. Yeah. Let me ask you a slightly related clinical question that I have that um, I've got this week and I'm a little bit mm, unsure of what to do in my current setting. So I had a, a family doctor who um, knows that I have this interest in breastfeeding medicine who had contacted me about a mom she's taking care of who um, I'm not sure how old the infant is but is maybe four months old and mom had had this significant history of blocked ducts and she had had nipple blebs and um, she you know we talked about 
a variety of different things for trying to treat her. But one of the things that I mentioned in our discussion was, you know, it doesn't sound like it as much if she's got multiple um, nipple blebs, but anytime there's a, a block duct or there's an area where it feels like there's a mass in the breast and this is sort of going on and it's not clear during lactation, I always keep in the back of my mind that there's the potential for cancer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she needs to just have that in her mind. So then later, she um, sent the patient for a mammogram and an ultrasound, and she got ultrasound results that she didn't really know how to interpret, and, you know, it was like, oh, you know, there was something about it being echogenic and isogenic, and we're trying to figure out from the report whether or not it could be a galactoseal, but we didn't have really fantastic um guidance in the initial report from the the radiologist who looked at this breast imaging. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, you know, in your system, do you have radiologists that you've gotten to know and trust more when you're looking at imaging of a mom who's lactating? Or, you know, do you have any words of wisdom for me as to how to try to get to find the person who can give me good information in the setting of, you know, this clinical situation that I feel like a lot of people don't have enough experience with. Right. Yeah. I would call the radiologist personally and just say, Hey, would you, you know, what do you think about this? And just try to get it into words that make sense. Like, do you think this should be biopsied? Um, is it easy to biopsy? Why not stick a needle in it? Let's, you know, yeah. and then it depends on if the best seems infected, like if there's intermittent, you know, redness and a lot of discomfort you know with a cancer it's not likely to be tender but if she's got yeah, a I lot mean, of I told know. her that same thing I said you know I would call a radiologist directly and try to sort of wheedle a little more information out of them yeah. about whether or not they think this is solid because in the report they wrote you know re-ultrasound in two to four weeks to look for resolution and consider biopsy and I was like that's really not specific enough yeah. for you to make a mm-hmm. clinical decision should you send her for biopsy or should you wait right. and do Yeah, just... well, that's where, that's where the clinician, she needs to have a better idea of how to assess, like, is it, is this simply a mass or is this infection um, or... Yeah, and it was um, really small. It was like a less than one centimeter oh. area. And so she's asking me, like, when you see this report, do you think it could be a galactoseal? And I'm like, mm, I no, don't think so because think at so. that size, you're not going to you're not going to feel a galactoseal, you know, they're compressible. Um, no, I would definitely anyway. get that one. I would follow up on that for sure. Yeah. yeah. I was, uh, that was essentially the advice that I gave her, but I was just like, you know, I really, I felt like in that moment, cause I've been here for a while and I don't really know any of our, I know all the pediatric radiologists, but none of the adult ones. It's like, it'd be really nice to just go and meet them and find out, you know, does anybody have an interest in this? And that really yeah. makes a difference sometimes in our health systems to just know it does, who's yeah. just doing that work. Right. So at our breast center, our breast center will oftentimes call me um, if they have a patient who, you know, if, if, a, if a primary care physician refers a patient to the breast center and they have an abscess galactoseal, then they will send the patient to the lactation clinic for follow-up. Um, just to just to get because they 
they don't know like should we drain it or not what you know how often should we drain it right so then they'll send the patient to me and then i'll just say okay we don't have to drain it right now or yes please would you please drain this even though you think it's a galactosil it needs to be drained and so sometimes they're looking for someone to tell them what to do and so having i think it is good to establish a relationship with people who do a lot of the imaging there to um so they know you know they may if a radiologist looks at it and is not quite sure what to do because they don't know they have the clinical information and they don't trust that the clinician knows what they're talking about, then the patient gets stuck. So I think that um, it would probably really benefit the radiologists for them to know that you're there because the breast center here at UW will say, I'll periodically get a message saying, thank God you're there, you know, like, cause we need help with this patient. <laughs> well, and so. clearly this is a common problem because just this week on the ABM listserv, there was, you know, somebody who was talking about this mom who had had mastitis and had this, you know, needle drainage, but had this ongoing mass. And one of the breast surgeons weighed in and said, you know, she's still got pain and tenderness in a mass. She's got an abscess. It's changing antibiotics exactly. isn't going to fix your problem. Right. Right. Um, right. So this, sort of nexus of these different specialties makes it really hard sometimes for people to get the care they need. Right, right. Yeah, hats off to Dr. Katrina Mitchell, right? She's amazing. <laughs> She's rad. Yeah, she is. Um, okay, so the last article I just want to mention during this podcast is about fenugreek, and we can talk a little bit about galactagogues too. Um, so the title of this article was Effectiveness of Fenugreek as a Galactagogue, an Outwork Meta-Analysis. And this was di- this was uh, published in a journal called Phytotherapy Research in 2017, pages 1 through 11. Um, so the issue is that fenugreek uh, is, well, fenugreek, I have a love-hate relationship with the fenugreek. Um, and I never know it. I really never know what to make of this herb. I've used it for years, um, but I've had so many moms and babies with side effects on it that I stopped using it. So when I saw this meta-analysis, I thought, okay, let's take a look and see what they're saying, whether I should really continue to shun Wait, wait, which not. side effects have you seen? Mm, you know, like uh, just gassiness and stomach upset, and then, of course, that maple syrup smell. <laughs> And then, I thought that was a plus. Oh God, I I don't know. I, I, I. When I think about it, when I walk in the room and I, I think, oh, it smells like curry. This is nice. But then sometimes the way that women excrete it, it smells like really super dense maple syrup and it gets sickening after a time. Wait, wait, wait. Let me interrupt you for another second and tell you last week I got called down to the PACU. They called me and said, there's a baby who was just born who smells like maple syrup. Mm-hmm. And we're worried this baby has maple syrup urine disease. Yeah. Can you please come down and see this baby? Yeah. And so I went down to the PACU and I smelled the baby's head. The baby hadn't yet peed. And the baby smelled like maple syrup. But the the thing is that that baby, like maple syrup urine disease requires the baby to digest protein to have that smell. Mm. And so at birth, it does not make sense. Mm. I called genetics and they were like, no, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So I talked to the mom and she had been drinking fenugreek broth oh. for weeks. Wow. And apparently it must have gotten into our amniotic fluid and the oh. baby was born smelling of maple syrup. <laughs> what a great, what a, well, that, that's a great story, particularly knowing that the baby has to have protein first. So that's very smart, very good. Um, so, but yes, it does, it does get, uh, just, it is disturbing to neonatologists, I think, that babies smell like maple syrup when they're, when they're um, 
and we know that there have been these cases of babies who are worked up for maple syrup urine disease in NICUs when moms are taking it and they're not letting neonatology know, or no one asks the mother for about it anyway. Um, so, uh, so I, but yeah, it's mostly, mostly the GI side effects and babies sometimes can be super fussy and gassy on it and don't eat as well. And that's the other reason why I don't mm -hmm. use it as much. And then okay. I was kind of feeling like, oh, does it really even work that well? I don't know. So this um, meta-analysis was done by a group of authors in Malaysia. And they describe that, first of all, fenugreek is an herbal plant. It's also known as Trigonella phonum graysum. Graycum, graysum. Um, it's used as a condiment and it's used as a medicine in Indian Ayurvedic medicine, traditional medicine, as well as traditional Chinese medicine. And in both types of medicine, it's known as a galactagog. Um, other uses um, would be for stomach upset and to ease labor pains. And specifically, traditional Chinese medicine uses it for um, general feelings of weakness, urethritis, and arthritis. So the authors found five randomized controlled trials with mothers from Egypt, Iran, USA, Turkey, and Indonesia. And they all were, um, so they're randomized controlled trials, meaning that they either compared the use of fenugreek in seed form or tea form um, with placebo, um, or in comparison to um, torbangan, which is also known as coleus amboinicus, um, or they compared it to palm dates. And I just want to mention that it, it's the seeds that are, again, the seeds that are used and not the leaves. And the seeds are put into either capsules or teas, depending on the study. Um, they have essentially found that in the meta-analysis that fenugreek will increase milk production when compared to placebo um, or to a control, but it's not as effective as palm dates and not as effective, not as effective as torbangan. Hmm. Um, and none of the um, randomized controlled trials actually reported on any side effects associated with any of the galactagogues. Um, and they mentioned the authors of this of this meta-analysis mention that there are observational studies that report on the side effects that we talked about, like GI upset, but also we know that it's a legume. So we know that it can, that people who are allergic to peanuts need to be careful with it. Mm -hmm. um, and then those people who are allergic to legumes um, oftentimes have a history of, as, of um, asthma. And then of course, if they have asthma, they have a risk of peanut allergy. Um, and so it can worsen asthma. Um, and of course, the maple syrup-like smell um, to secretions. And then also, you know, fenugreek, like some of my patients who are really use, um, into using natural medicines for their diabetes, will use it to um, drop their blood sugars. They add in cinnamon um, mm -hmm. and, and some other things too. So, um, so that drop in blood sugars is a concern too. And that's why I think some neonatologists don't like breastfeeding mothers, mothers to take it when the babies are in the NICU because they're worried about hypoglycemia. Although I don't know how much that's been reported. Yeah, I don't know that um, there's good evidence for that, but I um, am excited for our next podcast when I'm going to talk about another Lactmed update that has to do with herbal medicines and fenugreek is amongst them. So we'll talk about it more. Yeah, I think that'll be good because... Um, yeah, I, I, I guess the one thing I would say about fenugreek um, is, so first of all, this this article is consistent with 
what I find that there's some in, that there are some people who find that it's of benefit. And um, I feel like the people who benefit the most from fenugreek are those women who have already demonstrated the potential of making plenty of milk. And for some reason, they drop their supply and they just need to regain it. Oh, so this is so interesting to totally steal my own thunder for next week or next time, because one of the things that Philip Anderson says is that, you know, if we don't really know what a mom's diagnosis is behind her low milk supply, Mm We can't make a good choice as to which galactagogue to use. Exactly. And exactly. Medicine or herbs and medicines that are um, sort of weak estrogens, whereas we think of strong estrogens as inhibiting milk supply, the sort of weak plant-based ones may um, competitively um, bond with estrogen receptors, blocking um, mom's estrogens and thus actually um, increasing prolactin. Whereas moms that have a different mechanism, that's not going to make a difference. Right. So, right. And, um, and yeah, I think I read he, I think I read where he talked about that somewhere else as well. The phytobased estrogen sometimes can have an opposite effect because they can be very estrogenic for some women. And so I've definitely had some women who say, gosh, I took fenugreek and my supply went down. Um, mm-hmm. Because fenugreek actually is a phyto, it has phytoestrogen properties. Um, mm-hmm. I've noticed the same thing with Shadavari. Shadavari is a phytoestrogen, which is a galactagogan study show that's effective. But some women who are really sensitive to phytobased estrogens, they actually drop their supply with Shadavari. So I feel like it's a very small percent mm-hmm. of women that do that with fenugreek and Shadavari, but it's something to be aware of and let people know about that. So a lot of times I ask women, like, are you really sensitive to estrogen? So for example, are you really prone to um, headaches when you take the birth control pill? And... Um, and then I will warn them that they're at risk for headaches with some of these phytobased estrogens. Mm-hmm. But I do think that, like, um, I definitely, I've definitely over the years have categorized people in terms of what I think they're going to be, what I think they're going to respond to. So we can save that for our next conversation. <laughs> that will be so interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. Well, um, it's good talking to you. And for those of you who are listening, check out uh, the Milk Mobs YouTube channel. We'll, we should have this presentation on a video for you to see so you can see our slides. Um, but you can all, you, you will always be able to listen to this on its own just in the audio form um, at iTunes or at the Milk Mob website. All okay. Right. Are we going to do our vote? Always do a vote. Yeah. Okay, so if you have um, listened all the way to the end of our podcast and you would like to vote as to which article I should do in a future podcast, I am going to give you an option of um, one by Casey Rosen Carroll at University of Rochester titled Mother's Concerns for Personal Safety and Privacy While Breastfeeding, an Unexplored Phenomenon. Um, no voting for yourself a million times, Casey. And um, another update from Lactmed from Philip Anderson on unusual milk colors. So if you are strongly interested in either of those, you're going to be able to vote for them on our Facebook page. And I will be happy to take other suggestions as well. They can make comments um, on YouTube as well um, in the um, on this podcast. Awesome. Yeah. All right, Karen. Take care. Talk to you later. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Bye. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, contact us through themilkmob.org. 
We have other educational projects going on there, such as the Clinical Question of the Week and our Outpatient Breastfeeding Champion programs. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Facebook page, where you can also share comments and questions with your co-listeners. To learn more about the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, please visit www.bfmed.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you in a few weeks.